0: Welcome to the ABA Journal Legal Rebels Podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
1: Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different on the Legal Rebels Podcast. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm Assistant Managing Editor of the ABA Journal. My guest today is Nikki Black, Senior Director of Subject Matter Expertise and External Education at MyCase. She is the nationally recognized author of Cloud Computing for Lawyers and is co-author of Social Media for Lawyers and Next Frontier, both published by the ABA. Most importantly for me, she writes columns about legal technology for the ABA Journal. Nikki is here today to have a discussion with me about the top stories in legal tech for 2023. Spoiler alert, we might talk a little bit about ChatGPT and other generative AI tools. Welcome to the show, Nikki.
2: Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to talking about all these interesting topics.
1: Yeah, me too. So I gave the brief elevator version of your bio. bio. Can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today?
2: Sure. I practiced law for about a decade here in Rochester, New York, starting out in the Public Defenders and then moving on to a civil litigation firm. And then I have worked in the legal tech space, connecting lawyers with technology for probably almost two decades now. I started off with my uh, Sui Generis blog, and that's how I got to meet everybody in the space, and I started writing columns for um, the Daily Record. And from there, I ended up writing those two books that you talked about and was hired by MyCase in 2012, and uh, MyCase was acquired by Affinape, which is LawPay's parent company, last year, and throughout my tenure, the last 11 years with MyCase, I serve as the bridge between lawyers and technology, both internally and externally. So externally, I write articles for ABA Journal, Above the Law, The Daily Record, and I speak with lawyers at conferences across the country to help them understand uh, how to use technology in their practices. And then internally, I serve as the bridge between technologists and the industry. So I help different teams understand the legal industry, the practice of law, um, attorneys and their mindsets and how lawyers use different features. And I love technology. I'm really passionate about it. And I consider myself really lucky to have this position and this opportunity to be enmeshed in legal tech.
1: So you've always been a, you've always been a forward thinker, obviously, with the cloud computing book. I mean, nobody was talking about the cloud at that point. So you know, one reason why I wanted to have you on the show was to talk about obviously ChatGPT and other generative AI tools uh, that are built on large, large language models. Um, we've devoted several episodes of the show to it, but for those of you who might not be familiar with it, it basically allows users to type in queries in natural language and receive answers as if it were from a human. Uh, the large data set and the ability to analyze and disseminate uh, data quickly allows users to do research, get answers, draft written documents, and produce all sorts of content in the fraction of the time it would take if they did it through their usual means. So obviously it has all sorts of uses for lawyers and others in the legal industry, but obviously it has potential pratfalls as well. So talking about that, I mean, were you surprised at the level of enthusiasm and adoption that you've seen uh, in the legal industry, with with uh, when it comes to Chat GPT and other tools like that, uh, because I mean, obviously, we have a reputation for being, you know, kind of resistant to change, risk averse. Were you surprised to see lawyers just really kind of embrace it?
2: It's a really interesting question, and if you had asked me, you know, a little over a year ago, before Chat GPT became a, you know, was released in on November thirtieth last year, I would have had a really hard time predicting this level of receptiveness to any type of technology or any new technology being as impactful as I think as ChatGPT and GPT-powered tools have already been and how I think generative AI will be both across our society and also in our industry. I think what's really unique Looking back, I think what really set our industry up for being so receptive to this technology was the pandemic and how it impacted technology adoption. It rapidly accelerated technology adoption, and lawyers were using technologies. Uh, at a rate that I don't think anyone could have predicted before the pandemic hit, because it forced them to use these cloud-based technologies in order to stay operative, and in order to get work done, and also just interact with their family and friends while they were quarantining. So I think what that did was it forced lawyers to both use tech, but also appreciate the benefits of it. And it primed them to be receptive to sort of a disruptive technology. And that is what I think... Generative AI is. And I agree with something that uh, uh, Bill Gates said about this technology, which was that it was the PCs, the internet, and then this. And I think he's right. And I've staked my career on everything that came between the internet and generative AI. Uh, you know, cloud computing, mobile computing, social media, uh, all of these tools completely change the way that we communicate, conduct business, interact with the world. And yet I think generative AI is truly on a different level and is going to change our lives and the way that we interact with everyone around us also at a much faster rate than anything we've ever seen.
1: I agree with you. I mean, I think part of it also is that it's just so easy to use. I mean, you just type in an answer, and it, you, so you type in a question and boom, there's your answer. I mean, maybe, you know, obviously you have to um, then check the veracity of it and you can't just accept it as as, as gospel. But, But, you know, I mean, you know, like, like, what, like like what you're saying like with the pandemic it's like there were all these things that came that came out during the pandemic that were supposed to help us you know be more productive and some of them some of them were helpful and, and become part of our usual tasks like zoom and whatnot and, and, and those type of tools. But then also I remember like you know people were like oh the metaverse is gonna be be this huge thing that will help people be be able to interact and be able to talk to each other and kind of and, and, and be able to like do things that instead of having to leave their house, they could just do it from instead of, instead of having to go somewhere like to court, or to a legal, or to a law firm, or whatnot. They can just do it from the comfort of their home. But you know, it's so complicated, and you know, a lot, a lot of people didn't understand it, and just the level of adoption just wasn't there. But I feel like just with GPT and, and these type of tools, it's just they're so easy to use, and they're so they're so self intuitive. And plus, you know, I think the media probably helps too because, like, you know, we've. You know, not 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 necessarily us, but like you know, you had all these stories about these fun stories about oh, people typing in like oh, give me a Shakespearean rap in the in the style of like Eminem or something like that, and th- that, that that kind of stuff kind of resonates with people, I
2: think. Well, for sure, and I think another reason that you're going to see this level of adoption in our industry, and already we already have, is because one of the primary ways of using it is text-based with text-based output. And that's the primary mode of communication and work that is accomplished in the legal space. So it makes it particularly impactful in our space. And also that's why a lot of the studies are saying that uh, legal, the legal industry is going to be one of the key white-collar industries that's going to be significantly impacted. And the other thing I wanted to mention was that one of the things that I do um, with my company is that I oversee benchmark reports that pull data from our software, and I write reports on that and then an industry survey report and this year's industry survey report, which is uh going to be published in uh, in January, had a whole section on generative AI and we found that twenty seven percent of the twenty six hundred respondents had um, already used generative AI. And for our industry, <laughs> that's pretty significant. So, And especially given the 2,600 respondents. So that just gives you a sense of, in just one year, a quarter of lawyers have, uh, well, legal professionals, it wasn't just lawyers, but mostly lawyers, have already started using this technology. And that's pretty impressive when you think about it.
1: Yeah. yeah and obviously, we're talking about the potential game-changing aspect of it and whatnot. But obviously, you know, we also have to kind of look at it with, with a little bit of caution, right? So I guess my next question to you would be sort of like, you know, how much how much hype is too hype? Is too much hype, you know? Like, like, are we getting a little ahead of ourselves as far as like the things that it can accomplish? Like, I mean, some people are saying, oh, well, the time savings on using GPT and this type of technology for like research and for drafting and stuff could then be passed on to the consumer or maybe even lead to the elimination of the billable hour or things like that. I mean, do you see things... Moving that far, or is it just more? Just do you think it's going to be more incremental change, and then you know we'll see, we'll kind of see where things go down the line.
2: I think it's going to be significant change really quickly because we're at this stage of Moore's law, which is the this law that predicts how quickly tech advances. Uh, It's almost been obliterated at this point. Tech is advancing so rapidly that Moore's law is no longer uh, um, applicable. And what it had said was that every eighteen months computer speed doubled. But now that our generative AI is on the scene and we can create generative AI, generative AI agents, which can work with other generative AI agents to both create technology to get work done, there's this exponential leap that we're seeing in terms of the technology acceleration. And it's getting; it gets better every time that we, you know, you dive in and try to use it. And just this week, Google released Gemini, which is their uh, advanced version of generative AI. And it's, I've tested it out; it's pretty impressive. Uh, so I think that there are absolutely um, some hurdles that the legal industry needs to address. And their ethics opinions coming out, like just uh, this month, California's came out, but uh, ethics guidance, but. I do think that in terms of the billable hour, I think it's going to disrupt the billable hour. I think I'm I'm in the minority. Most people that I've spoken to disagree. But I think that between the ways that it can streamline legal work and then the ability to have generative AI baked into all the software that your firm uses, including the software that your firm uses to run your business, you can take generative AI, apply it to your fir- firm's data and more accurately predict how much a new case will cost your firm to take it to completion, and then you can actually create, predict and create flat fees that are pretty accurate and will allow your firm to profit based upon both the type of case and analyzing how long it's taken your firm to bring cases like that to conclusion in the past. So I think that when you take all of that together, both the efficiencies and the actual legal work and the ability to more accurately predict how much time is going to be taken for a specific case, I think it will disrupt the billable hour because what's going to happen is boutique firms, you know, lawyers that leave large law firms and start a boutique firm in a special practice, uh, focus on a very singular practice area, are going to be able to undercut the fees that these large firms are charging, because they're going to accurately be able to predict the cost of a case and charge flat fees, which is what clients prefer. So that's sort of a roundabout answer. But I think all those factors are really going to come into play in terms of possibly disrupting the billable hour. And I think there's a more than 50% chance that it will over the next two or three years. And I'm going out on a limb there, but that's what (laughs) I'm thinking will happen.
1: Yeah, I'm of two minds about that. Because I've long kind of looked at the billable hour, sort of like it's like Keith Richards, right? It's really resilient; it's never going anywhere. So, but on the other hand, I kind of feel like, well, there was something before the billable hour. People, lawyers, still got paid and still may, you know were able to make a living before before it came about. So clearly, there was life before it, and, and there could be life after it. So, I, I think it'll come down to to the clients. It'll come down to the to the law departments. It'll come down to the companies. If they're if they embrace this technology and they're like, well, hey, wait a minute, like if it takes you know, a fraction of the time that it used to take to do like a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment or whatnot, then why why are we paying, you know, like for for like two, three hours of work when, when it can be done in 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 a fraction of that? So you know, I think I think I think if they the the more the more the technology improves, the more it cuts down on inaccuracies and the more it's it's embraced by, you know, the you know clients and by you know, law departments and whatnot, Then inevitably then they'll start going to law firms and be like, well, wait a minute, we're not going to pay you the usual rates. We're not going to do this. Like it's, it's going to have, it's going to have to be done, you know, with, with some sort of like, yeah, either alternative fee arrangement or some flat fee or, or maybe even a subscription or whatnot. I think I, I, I but, but, you know, but I don't, I don't know if we're at that point yet, but I do think that, if the tech improves and it gets embraced by a much wider cross section of you know clients and and and, and in-house departments and why not then yeah it could definitely tip the balance
2: well we both come from a criminal law background and in that practice area defense attorneys tend to charge i mean they charge flat fees and they're able to predict pretty accurately and over time make significant amounts of money uh, by predicting the you know, how long it's going to take a felony case to come to conclusion. And that's just the way it's done there. So that's what always sort of confused me about civil litigation. If you can do that in a criminal case, you can do it in a civil case. You know, those are slightly less predictable, but you still can do that. So that's why the other thing I think that's also going to happen is that, you know, the ethics opinion, uh, the guidance that came out from California talked to actually addressed charging for the ways that you can charge clients fees for using generative AI. And what it said was that you cannot charge for the time saved, but you can charge for the time uh, actually conducting the research. And quite, honestly, that's akin to how we conduct legal research, right? And how we charge for legal research these days. The time that it takes you to actually conduct the research is what you're charging for, including crafting the appropriate queries, and in this case, prompts for generative AI. And I think what you're going to see is because you cannot charge for the time saved exactly what you talked about which is that some firms are going to be undercutting others significantly and that's going to affect the consumer's percep- perception of what they're going to be willing to pay for
1: and look let's be honest right i mean and, and this kind of ties to what we've been talking about in general like you're not just going to type a query in the in the in the chat chat gpt or whatever and just be like okay here's my Here's my response, or here's my motion, or here's my this or that. You're gonna you have to check all the citations. You have to check all the uh, the information to make sure it's accurate. Otherwise, you end up like those lawyers that filed the motions with the made-up cases and whatnot and get in trouble. So it's not like you're just typing it into GPT and boom, there there you go. You have your paperwork. You you still have to do the work to kind of make sure everything's correct. Make sure you craft your your queries correctly. Make sure you're you know you're citing good law, you're citing accurate law, you're citing actual law. So there's still a lot of lawyering work that still has to be done. So it's not like yeah you're not going to spend five hours doing it, but it's not like you're also it's not like it's going to be like five seconds and you're done. You know. So in that in that vein, sort of like kind of like looking at the accuracy of GPT and and this other these other types of um, you know large language models and whatnot. Um, where do you kind of see that heading? Uh, you know like like in, in, in this year and, and, and down the road. Like do you think? Do you think that it'll get more accurate and the information will get better over time?
2: That's already happening. And with the larger legal companies that have that have already released generative AI into their legal research tools and also some of their other software platforms like LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters, they already are able to say, I think that if I recall correctly, one of them said 99.9% accuracy rates because by... Guard railing the data and only providing a specific data set to the generative AI, and also by oftentimes putting stuff on the back end in terms of tweaking the queries or the prompts that are put in there, and also limiting other aspects in terms of responses on the back end, they're able to limit that significantly compared to what you're seeing with the publicly available tools like ChatGPT or Google Bard. So I think that that's already happening. They're able to significantly limit it, and it's only going to get better over time. And that problem will be solved. I know it's a challenging problem from a development standpoint, but it will be solved. And it's like I said, because the tech is accelerating so quickly, it's going to be solved a lot more quickly than it uh you might think that it would be. So I think it's gonna. those issues are going to go away and as ethics opinions are released that give lawyers more guidance and more, a, a more of an understanding of how they can accurately use these tools. That's going to give them a security blanket more than anything else because the current ethics opinions are already sufficient and the rules and the comments to them. But this just gives them a roadmap of implementation so that they feel like they're doing it a, appropriately.
1: All right. Before we continue, let's take a quick
0: break for a word from our sponsor. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple.
1: And we're back. Obviously, we're still dealing with the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic and the move to remote virtual working. A big question before the pandemic ended was whether remote or virtual arrangements would stay or if things would go back to normal. So let's let's talk about some law firms. I mean, there have been some movement towards making people go back to the office at least three, four times a week. Other firms have been resolute in keeping their virtual or hybrid models. Where do you think this is heading heading ultimately?
2: Well, this year has been really interesting because the of all the economic headwinds and the unpredictability of the economic environment across companies, not just law firms, because there was so much unpredictability and because law firms were seeking to sort of regain the advantage over their employees, if you will, put them in a position where there could be layoffs to kind of create some a sense of Uncertainty amongst the employees, and give it gave them leverage in terms of trying to push employees back into the in, into the office. And one thing that I think is interesting about that whole push to go back to the office is we learned during the pandemic that legal work could be done, it could be done efficiently, and money could be made when people work remotely. It's profitable, but as Joe Patrice has pointed out from uh he's with above the law and he's pointed out a bunch of times during our weekly webcast that you and I are both on that the investment into real estate that was done pre-pandemic with all of these both companies and law firms locked into 10-year leases where they can't get out of them that are incredibly expensive in these downtown areas in these in these large metropolitan cities they're locked into these and they want to get the benefit of that Investment, And also, in my opinion, you've got a lot of narcissists at the top of companies and law firms. And what? No. <laughs> and narcissists need narcissistic. They need a, a narcissistic feed. They need to feed off of other people. And if they're not in the office with you, it's much harder to do that, to um, feed your needs as a narcissist. And so I think that's another reason why you're seeing this push into the office and I think it's unfortunate because, and it particularly impacts women and people with young families, not just women, but parents with young families, because during the pandemic, there was a significant amount of flexibility that people had to control their schedules and their lives uh, when they had young children. And by pushing people back into the office, it is absolutely impacting the ability of some people to perform at that as high a level as they did during the pandemic. And it causes a lot of extra stress too, and it's unnecessary especially since we know it can be profitable to work remotely. So, you know, it's it's been hard watching this back and forth. And I think ultimately the employees are going to win out over time because it's just inevitable that we uh, work remotely because it makes the most sense. And also, we also learned during the pandemic and we... Uh, we may want to talk about this more, but that it also really helped the court system um, function more smoothly, especially for certain types of matters. So I think that remote work isn't going away. And I think it's only going to increase over time, despite the wishes of those at the tops of law firms.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I I thought at the time when the pandemic started that, you know, once everything passed and everything was back to normal, then law firms was like, all right or and, and just business in general just like, all right everybody come back we you know we 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 had our fun you know we let you guys work in your pj's uh but now everybody has to come back to come out to the office like like you said you know we have these beautiful offices that we signed you know these gigantic leases on you know some some law firms i remember we did a story about this like they they were even trying to like emulate some of the silicon valley offices with like you know getting ping pong tables and you know pool tables and like all these kind of things to kind of try to, to, try to Make their employees happy when they're at work and stuff like that. So, yeah, that stuff costs money. And, you know, having to kind of like sit, sit in the middle of downtown somewhere and go to waste, you know, it's not probably not the best business move out there. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, looking at sort of the all the studies out there and also the, the reporting, and, and we've done some of this too. Young people, especially people like that are just getting into the workforce now or, or only a few years into it, they prefer this type of work. I mean, they they like having more flexibility they like having a little bit more control over the schedule and also like you said with women minorities fam- people with young families it just it just makes sense for them so i i, I do kind of wonder but, but then i also see the point like because i think well, we did a podcast a couple months ago talking to like law firm consultant and whatnot and he said that you know law firms are having trouble just kind of fostering more of a culture or maintaining their culture and and also, you know, having that ability to mentor uh, younger, younger lawyers and whatnot. And so there is going to be kind of like a push and pull there uh, as far as, you know, whether they're going to, you know, want people to come in to make that more conducive to promoting their culture or, you know, promoting mentorship or whatnot, or if they're going to figure out new ways to do it. So I think it'll be very interesting to kind of see where that's going, but you talked about courts and I do want to talk about that. So what are some things that you're seeing as far as keeping some of the innovations that we saw, uh, during the pandemic in, in like in the court system like you know, virtual depositions or virtual hearings or things like that. I mean because obviously you know some stuff is saying some stuff is some stuff is going and I was just wondering what you're seeing in that.
2: Sure. I I think it's a really interesting issue. One thing I wanted to just mention was when you mentioned law firm culture, it makes me laugh because I often think it's just like a culture of terror. I'm not sure what kind of culture they're trying to maintain, but um, that aside, it it sounds disingenuous to me.
1: (laughs) Well, every law firm claims to have a culture, right? But I mean, I've also... I'm also the, the more cynical view is like, well, look, ultimately the culture is to make money and to, and and to serve your clients, right? I mean, <laughs> right. That, that that that's really the call. That's really the culture at the end of the day. right? I mean, obviously some firms will be like, okay, well, we have, uh, you know, no no jerks here, or we have like, you know, like a very inclusive atmosphere, and we do this and do that. But it's just kind of like, well, okay, but look, ultimately at the end of the day, you guys are about getting those billable hours and and and, 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 and you know and, and making that money right so it always rang a little hollow to me but I but 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 I also know that law firms really are zealous about about protecting their culture and kind of protecting who they are and kind of distinguish using it to kind of distinguish themselves from the pack. So I, I get that too.
2: I do too but it always sounds a little disingenuous. But in terms of remote work and the court system, I think it's really interesting how it has impacted it. At the very start of the pandemic, I remember during a local bar association meeting, one of the judges who was a, a seasoned judge, if you will, who is someone I would really think of as a curmudgeon, said, this Zoom thing is great. We're Zooming all the time. And that's when I knew like something was happening here, that this this particular judge was totally for this Zoom concept. And during the pandemic... Constantly, you know, being only on Zoom for the uh, all court appearances was not ideal. But now I think what we're seeing is that for the more routine court appearances, status conferences or just appearing on the record on behalf of your client the first time. Appearing remotely is a great thing, especially for criminal defense lawyers who have to travel to multiple counties sometimes to appear on behalf of different clients and also for the courts just to get their docket to move more quickly for those more routine types of appearances. So for those, I think that it is ideal also for depositions in civil cases, especially when you've got an expert that lives somewhere other than where the firms are located, because it's really expensive to fly an expert in for a deposition. And if you can conduct that deposition remotely, it saves significant amounts of time. And it's just ultimately a better experience for everybody. So in those specific use cases. I don't think that remote work is going away. And I think you're going to continue to see remote proceedings occur in that fashion. But given that we both come from criminal, de- uh, criminal law backgrounds, we know that with con- when constitutional issues come into play, it's particularly important to have the right to confront your accuser in court. And whether you're litigating, especially a trial, a civil or criminal matter, you need to be able to see how the judge is reacting, see how the jurors are reacting, be able to cross-examine that witness in person so that you can really understand their reactions and dive in when you sense a weakness or an opening in terms of their answer that you want to explore. And it's a lot harder to do that remotely. So for constitutional purposes and the, on the criminal side, I think that it's just not a feasible way to move forward unless it's the only option for criminal trials and hearings. And on the civil side, it's just not preferable because I don't think it's good for trial tactics and for the best representation of your clients. So I think it's going to, you're going to see it. It's going to be different across the board, but there's some cases where it's absolutely going to be a mainstay, in my opinion.
1: I agree with you. I think you definitely lose a lot. By not being in the courtroom with the jury and with the witnesses and with your clients and things like that, with the judge and the stenographer and all that stuff, I think you definitely lose a little. Some you you lose a lot actually, just just aesthetically and just tactically and things like that. But also, like you said, you know there is that there there is a the confrontation clause issue for criminal matters and whatnot, and whether or not you know these these type of trials actually would violate that. I think that that, that is an interesting legal question that. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily making its way through the courts, or or maybe it's it's moot at this point. But yeah, I I, I, I remember thinking just when it, when it started with with these um, remote hearings and whatnot that that was going to be an issue. And but also I, I think you know one one other thing is that like you know we talk about you know and this kind of ties into what we talked about earlier with technology kind of taking on a lot of the tasks that you know, a task that lawyers would ordinarily do. It's like well we're talking like kind of. Um, we're talking more preliminary stuff. We're not talking like the actual like trial strategy. We're not talking about like, you know, um, crafting legal arguments and crafting opening openings and closings and whatnot. And I think lawyers will guard will hold on to that and guard that because that is sort of the, especially for trial lawyers, that is like sort of the bread and butter of what they do. That that's how they make their money. That's how they distinguish themselves. Like that's, that's how they show that they're bespoke and that they're, you know, unique and whatnot. And that, and, and, you know, they're, as I'll say, like, there's no, there's no program that, that can come up with, with, with what they can do like in court. I do I, I do wonder if the technology is getting better to the point that maybe it, it could emulate it but but yeah but that that is where they make their money and I think they will kind of guard that territory pretty pretty strongly um but but like you said like yeah for a deposition yeah I don't know I don't know why you wouldn't want to do it remotely or virtually or whatnot because it just saves money and it saves everyone time and you know rather than everyone being in a room together and flying everybody in and and accommodating everybody's schedule you can just 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 turn on the turn on the computer and there you are you know but um but I did I did want to ask you sort of like kind of a general question about ad- tech adoption and whatnot. Um and you know, obviously, you know, you know, in your with your job in my case, you know, you, you track this kind of stuff. What are you seeing as far as just lawyers attitudes towards adoption of technology in general and this is not just gen- not just generative ai but like other t- other forms of technology other stuff that they that they started using during covid stuff that you know um, newer stuff that's coming down the pipes now like how are they integrating it into their practice and how are they holding on to it and using it as part of their everyday lives
2: well the pandemic absolutely was this technology adoption accelerator and it got lawyers that who otherwise never would have used technology to try it out. And one of my favorite examples of this is there's an attorney locally who is a older gentleman who's a criminal defense lawyer. He's been doing criminal defense forever. And when it comes to tech, he's always been kind of a curmudgeon. I remember when I wrote an article about social media for the Daily Record, encouraging lawyers to understand and use it. Back in like probably 2009 or 2010, someone brought to my attention that he drafted a responsive article that had been published that sort of completely disagreed with what I said and suggested it was irresponsible. So he's sort of always been a tech curmudgeon. And when Bob Ambrogi spoke at our very first solo and small firm symposium here in Rochester, he still remembers this guy telling him, I'm gonna use tech over my dead body and it like that was one of the most memorable parts of the conference to Bob because it was just such a statement. And then during the pandemic, this guy got an iPad and he started using it and he really liked his iPad and he was sold on this concept of an iPad. And and right before the pandemic in New York we started to have mandatory e filing. And he used to talk about how he would sign what he called the idiot affidavit, and he wouldn't e-file because the idiot affidavit would say, I don't have the technology, I don't get it, so I'm filing a paper, you know, paper pleadings. And so he was even staunchly filing this idiot affidavit right up to the pandemic. And then in the pandemic, he bought that iPad, he was using it all the time, and what I thought was really notable was when we had our very first in-person solo small symposium, it was this year in, actually, I think it was two years ago. So this was the second one in person. It was this spring in 2023. And in response to, uh, I made a comment to somebody else's presentation. And this guy was sitting behind me. And I said, you guys need to check out this thing called ChatGPT. You know, it's new, but there's so much potential. It saves you so much time. Uh, There's a lot of issues with it as well. And I'm going to talk about that later in my presentation at this conference. But when I was done talking about ChatGPT, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, what's that thing called? And he wrote it down. And I was so impressed that he was curious about this new technology. And it really showed it to me was this. It was a 180. Like this guy was going in a completely different direction than he was before the pandemic. And I think it was indicative of what happened with all lawyers. And the data from our legal industry survey shows that the first survey that we published in 2021, we we have data on how much lawyers were uh, on uptick. Like we asked them, how does your tech use compare before the pandemic to now? And then last year in our survey, we did the same thing. So we have two years worth of data where we surveyed over 2000 lawyers each year and asked them how their uh, tech use changed. And it was pretty uniform from year to year with like 70, uh, the the amount of lawyers that were using, uh, that had used cloud computing increased from like 17 to 20% before the pandemic. And I think those numbers were a little low, quite frankly, to like uh, 70%. So there's a huge uptick in usage and understanding that they were using it. I think that's part of it. Lawyers don't always realize they're using the cloud, but now they do. Um, but so there were some significant gains and, and 70% were planning to incorporate more remote tools both years into their practice within the next year. So you know, lawyers are significantly using technology at rates they never had before. And it was the pandemic that drove them to do so. And now, with generative AI in their interest, I've spoken about it across the country because I've been writing about it since early this year. And so I've been asked to speak in a number of different times this year. And the interest and the level of receptiveness and curiosity is unlike anything I've ever seen in my entire career. So I think we've got some really interesting times ahead of us uh, when it comes to legal tech.
1: Well, so he, he wrote down Chachi, he didn't He didn't put it in his iPad?
2: No, he wrote it down. That's a
1: good point. Nope, he wrote uh, it down. Well, baby steps, right? (laughs) For sure. So uh, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot cc, and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. So let's talk about Legal Tech m and uh, I've joked with you in the past that we always seem to have a story every year about how it was a record-breaking year in terms of deal volume or value. But this year, it seems like M&A deals are, especially in especially the legal tech sphere, are down, and they're down throughout the whole industry in general. There were a few big ones, like Case Tech's being acquired by Thompson Reuters for six hundred fifty million, or you know Fastcase and VLex merging or whatnot. But it seems like the deals are down all over, especially in the legal tech sphere. So, what do you? I mean, like, what, what what do you kind of attribute that to?
2: Well, it's been an interesting year. I alluded earlier to the economic headwinds and the economic unpredictability, and that significantly impacted companies and their investors, private equity or venture capital, it affected their willingness to take risk. So because the willingness to take risks was significantly reduced, given all that unpredictability, that also reduced the acquisitions because acquisitions are a risk. And and especially the two prior years were just off the charts. So something had to give, right? There was already a ton of consolidation that had happened. And there's only so much room for consolidation. And then what happens, like the next thing that happens is some new category comes along in terms of software. A bunch of new startups jump in and then that gets consolidated. And that's sort of what generative AI has become, right? There have been so many new startups rolled out that are generative AI focused in the legal tech space and outside of it. So you know, the M&As were significantly reduced, I think partly just because something had to give. And also because of all the economic uncertainty, the high inflation rates, you know, gas being so high, it was felt, you know, trickled down throughout uh, everybody's experience. And the investors were just unwilling to engage in a lot of risk. So I think that's essentially what we were seeing this year.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think obviously there was a big yeah you know, yeah you know, i think there was part of it was a kind of a course correction from the couple of the previous couple of years but also i think everyone just expected things to kind of be really bad you know i mean inflation was looking like it was going to be uncontrollable um i think everyone you know, thought there was going to be like some huge recession as a result of coming out of the pandemic, or you know, the various conflicts throughout the throughout the world and whatnot. But still, our our economic markers are, are relatively strong and and whatnot. And so I think that didn't necessarily come the way people thought it would. And and I think you know people, yeah, like I said, people got cautious, didn't want to get caught, you know, making a huge investment only to then realize, oh crap, you know, we shouldn't have spent that money because now we got to, how we're we going to pay our bills. So it'll be interesting to kind of see kind of what what happens this uh, you know th- this next year, especially with like you said with generative AI and whatnot. I mean, do you think that could spur like a next kind of boom in sort of M&A deals, you know, in the coming year?
2: I think what's interesting is that what happens, and people have that have been in tech a long time have told me this, is what you see is in any given category of software, Lots and lots of startups popping up, and it gets to a point where it feels like whack-a-mole. You can't even keep track of them all. And then there's the inevitable consolidation. And you ultimately end up with a few major companies that are in that category. And so I think that we're absolutely seeing that with generative AI, except I think it's going to happen much more quickly. And I think we've seen that across the board when you look at premises-based software, those consolidation periods took a lot longer than they did with the cloud-based software. And generative AI is just in this stage of, uh, you know, in terms of Moore's Law and this unbelievable exponential rate of acceleration in terms of technology rollouts. And I would argue that the consolidation, the, the rate of consolidation, uh, is it's going to happen A lot earlier than it has with other types of tech, and the rate is going to be a lot quicker. And so we're going to end up with a few companies that are in each category of software, hold all the AI uh, generative AI tools. I think you're going to see generative AI tools rolled out across every category of software. But I think some of the bigger companies are going to snap up the smaller ones in their specific category that are only solely generative AI focused kind of like what we saw with, you know, case text. And years ago, LexisNexis acquired Lex Machina. That was kind of their foray into AI. So I think you're going to see a lot of that happening.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we talked about this, like, um, you know, off off air and whatnot, just this idea of like, well so many companies now want to show, oh well, we're working with generative AI tools or we're integrating into our into our services or we're, you know, doing this or we're gonna roll this out or whatnot. So I think yeah, there'll be more of that too, this kind of this well, well well, we're doing this too and we're we got GPT and we got this and we got that. Just 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 kind of keeping up with the Joneses. Like you don't wanna you don't wanna look like look like the company that doesn't know what they're doing in this sphere,
2: right? Well one thing that's been interesting to watch in that respect is at the very beginning of this year a handful of companies rolled out one or two generative AI features into their software. They were very simple features, but they rolled it out immediately, and they were all GP, uh, or GPT or GPT-based, OpenAI. And then you saw a whole bunch of just little startups all over the place in different categories, most of which were using Chat GPT or OpenAI's technologies, but not all of them. And then the large technology software companies that have actually rolled out public-facing products like v like Thomson Reuters, like Lexus, most of them say that they aren't relying on just one. They're using multiple different generative AI tools from multiple different companies for different purposes. And initially, when we all heard that, we thought that was interesting and we weren't exactly sure why. But I think that in the, for the long game, that actually was was and will continue to be a really smart decision, this thoughtful, careful implementation, because as we learned from the OpenAI crazy weekend, that debacle of Altman getting fired and then being back on and then other the whole board getting fired, all of this happening over the course of a weekend, is there's a lot of instability and unpredictability because the advancement's happening so quickly, because it's such a new technology. And so the companies, that kind of were a little more thoughtful and careful in their implementation and didn't put all their eggs in one basket, probably are going to be the ones in a better position in the long run. So even though it initially seemed like, why are they resting on their laurels? I'm not sure that they necessarily were. I think that they were assessing the risks and the instability and making some informed decisions that would put them in a more stable position when they did roll out these products and also roll them out a little more thoughtfully and um, impactfully for their customers and based upon what their customers tell them that they actually need rather than just a intuition or a knee-jerk reaction on that. Gotcha.
1: So finally, if our listeners want to get in touch with you for whatever reason, uh, what's the best way to do that?
2: An email that they can use is nikki.black, B-L-A-C-K, B-L-A-C-K So N-I-K-I dot B-L-A-C-K at MyCase.com, which is M-Y-C-A-S-E dot com. So black at MyCase.com. Or you can also find me on LinkedIn, which is where I tend to spend most of my time. Surprisingly, I never would have predicted this uh, a few years ago, but in the wake of the uh, Twitter just falling off of its throne and uh, becoming a dumpster fire, uh, it seems like there's a lot more interactions going on these days on LinkedIn. So you'll find me there as well.
1: You were on TikTok for a little while, though.
2: I was on TikTok, and I love TikTok, and I watch, I use it a lot, to, I consume, but I, it was a lot of work to create those videos, and I only had so many yeah. ideas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there are always so many dance moves you could do, Right,
2: right. Right. <laughs>
1: All right, well thanks for joining us, Nikki. I appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. I Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. I
1: did too. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please go to your favorite app and check out some other titles from Legal Talk Network. In the meantime, I'm Victor Lee and I'll see you next time on the ABA Journal Legal Rebels Podcast.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit legalrebels.com, legaltalknetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter.